welcome to the Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottoms of issues, trends, and developments in future fuels, vehicles, and transport energy. I'm your host, Tammy Klein. I'm founder and CEO of Transport Energy Strategies. And with me today on the podcast, I'm super excited to have Corey Bullis, who is the Senior Public Affairs Specialist for Flow. And we're going to talk electrification and electric vehicle charging today on the podcast. Corey, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Tammy. Super excited to be here and obviously get into our favorite topic of EV. (laughs) Yes. So... For the folks who may be listening, I've been working on charging. I actually started working on charging and electric vehicles 25 years ago, right around the time that General Motors (laughs) was collecting its first round of electric vehicles, recalling those or repossessing those. It sort of went off into other areas. But over the last few years, I've been working intensely on electric vehicles and electric vehicle charging issues. So again, I'm super excited to have Corey on the program. And just to get right into the questions, can you talk a little bit, first of all, about Flow, what Flow is doing and how it's different from the other electric vehicle charging companies that are that are out there? What sets you all apart in your view? Happy to. So just to kind of give you a, a quick sense of who we are as a company, you know, we've been around for over 10 years and we do all different types of charging deployments. We offer residential, public, commercial charging. We do DC fast chargers. We do level two. So we pretty much run the full gamut of options when it comes to deploying charging solutions. We also do fleet electrification, um, for instance. One of the unique things about us is we actually manufacture both our hardware and our software. So that gives us full control over the solution we are providing to customers. And I think they ultimately like that because they're working then with one vendor to customize and serve their hardware and software needs when it comes to a charging solution. So that's that's kind of the base foundation of us as a company. But then some additional areas that we really focus on that I think separates us is you know, Canada uh, is our home country. We're headquartered in Quebec City. And Canada has a population of 40 million people, which is equivalent to just the state of California. We have tons of rural areas in Canada. We've spent a lot of time deploying uh, rural charging solutions. And we have a lot of lessons learned from how you do that. And I think we're coming to find as we're in the American context rural charging is not as advanced or as far along compared to our experience uh, uh, in the U.S. And then some other areas that we like to focus on a lot is curbside charging. Another kind of unique but important technology application is putting chargers in the right-of-way in cities so that they can serve folks who live at multi-unit dwellings or just general dense downtown cores that lack a lot of open space, we find that the right-of-way, putting chargers curbside, is a really important solution for drivers to have access to adequate charging. I'll leave it there for now. I keep keep (laughs) going on and on, but those are some highlights. Well, let's dig into this, this further. From your perspective, where do you, you just brought up rural, where do you see the greatest gap in charging right now? And, and what are the, the greatest challenges you know, for flow and just charging in general as it continues to expand in, in the U.S. and also in, in Canada? It's a great question. It's something that I think everyone in the industry is wrestling with constantly is what are the gaps we need to fill? I would first start by saying that 
I'm going to be stating the obvious here, right? But when it comes to EV adoption, we need to put the chargers where the drivers are. And when somebody is driving their vehicle, they use it for all things, right? No matter where they're going. So if they're going to the beach or they're going up to the mountains on holiday, or if they are going shopping at their strip mall down in the city, we need chargers everywhere that they're going to be. And they need to see that. And they need to feel confident that no matter where they take their car on a weekend trip or an evening trip or a road trip, that chargers are going to be where they need to be. And that is still something that no one has figured out perfectly. And it's a process to plug all of those gaps. Now, to be a little bit more specific beyond that, it there are some of the more acute gaps that I think we're wrestling with. And I think this can be said broadly to the US, and I think it is still applicable to a certain degree in Canada, is like I said earlier, curbside charging continues to be a really, really important solution and a gap right now that's not being addressed. Fortunately, there have been some awesome deployments in the US that we have done with various cities. We have 200 curbside streetlight mounted chargers with the city of LA, which has been um, one of our early projects in the US. We also have 120 curbside chargers in the city of New York. And I think New York City has also set a goal now to deploy 1,000 curbside chargers, which for us is it's monumental to even get that kind of North Star called out in a, in a city planning document. And we certainly want to see more of it because that kind of sets the tone and the pace. And then it and then it helps kind of ease or create more partnerships than with companies like us to address those gaps. The other gap, like I said, rural charging. This is especially acute when it comes to the US and even what we're seeing in California is rural communities. And then, you know, on top of that, low-income communities, disadvantaged communities, these are all areas that have major charging deserts that just we as the collective stakeholder community, whether you're a utility or a charging company, we just we're still working on. It's it's still a work in progress to really build out the the adequate infrastructure. So that's that's kind of a, a sense of the market and, and some aspects related to deployment. But I think you also asked then like what are some of the needs beyond that yeah, related right. to policy, right? Mm-hmm. That's also a complicated question. There's certainly <laughs> a lot of layers to it, but let's all try to kind of break it out a little bit. You know, foundationally, we're seeing the most growth in the charging market where there's obviously foundational policies setting a North Star. So when you think about ZEV mandates, mm-hmm. when you think about California's phasing out the sale of new um, new combustion engine vehicles by 2035, I think Massachusetts also has a goal to do that as well. There might be some other uh, pockets that I'm missing, but those things are foundational because it sets, once again, the tone and the pace on we're doing this. It's a question of when, not if, and a question of how. So those foundational policies are important. Low carbon fuel standards, which offer operational incentives to EV charging station providers are huge. Even separate from that, continued incentives um, in general, both for vehicle purchases and charging station purchases are, are monumental. Like that, that has to be a foundation to everything first because the market is still working to become cost competitive with yeah. fossil fuels and, and legacy technologies. 
Beyond that, though, I mean, that's, that's really just the first half of the equation. We then start to get into a whole nother layer of, of wonky policies that are, like I said, while wonky, important to, to, do, to doing the build out uh, uh, of infrastructure. One of the things that's really important to flow that we don't see getting talked about enough is uh, reliability policy. Okay. So it, it's not good enough to just have dots on the map, as we like to call it. It's not just about getting the infrastructure in the ground. It's also about maintaining it in good working order so that it is reliable and accessible when drivers want to use it. And we're seeing lots of anecdotes and some data points uh, some statistics that point to unreliable chargers in various parts of the U.S. And so to us, that's a problem. It's a, yeah. a huge cause of concern because then consumers will start to feel like, is this infrastructure reliable? Can I depend on it? And if I can't, then does that mean are EVs really the right choice for me? So yeah. it's a, it, that's a drag on the entire market and the entire industry related to the perception of EVs if we're not instituting requirements to make chargers more reliable and in good working order. So are there areas, are there, there are states or are other authorities having jurisdiction or localities, uh, we could say, that are beginning to address that issue? The short answer is yes. And we've really seen this, and, and we agree with this, is reliability requirements should be attached to public funding, including utility funding as well. We have seen in, in various RFPs across the country, funding entities, sometimes state agencies, sometimes utilities, sometimes private entities, actually attach uh, uptime requirements for charging stations. So typically we've seen 95%, 97%, we're even seeing 98 or 99%. And we're actually seeing certain government documents provide it as a recommendation that you should be including uptime requirements for charging stations in your funding programs. Those are just recommendations. They have it translated into sweeping mandates. We are starting to see more uh, examples, I would say, of this popping up in various programs that we uh, need to respond to. And the, the latest example being in California, our state energy commission just released a grant for charging stations for multi-unit dwellings. They originally proposed a 95% goal, I'll put in quotations. Mm -hmm. And uh, when they released the official final solicitation, because the first one was a draft, they they upped it to 97% and they they firmed it up beyond just a goal. So things like that, while small, are very important on, on kind of increasing salience on this issue. So besides reliability, are there other policies sort of in, in brief that you think are needed across the U.S. and also in, in, in Canada to really help facilitate the expansion of charging. You mentioned how important incentives are. You've talked about the, the need for reliability, which in my experience, a lot of people really aren't talking about or they're just beginning to, to talk about how important that issue is. What else? Is it expedited permitting? Is it building codes, uh, EV-capable, EV-ready building codes? Is it something else that really will kind of help sort of break down barriers to charging and help expand it? But once again, the short answer is going to be, yes, we need all those things. <laughs> yes, also, yes, and yes. <laughs> yes, right. Those have a valuable role. I'll quickly focus on two that we like to talk about. 
Um, and so it's not to say this is the end all be all solution to everything, but we think it has an important role. First things first, very well-defined utility roles when it comes to electrification efforts. While I don't know how every, everything's going in every single state, my understanding is not every utility has, um, let's say, full permission to be investing significantly in yes. transportation electrification. We're seeing in places like California, utilities have a well-defined role. There's, that's certainly the case in lots of other states. We're seeing that increase. I would not say that's a widespread given, though, across all 50 states. And the utilities are perfect partners to be working hand-in-hand with the charging market to achieve the scale that we need and at the pace that we need um, in order to meet our climate goals. That's one policy issue that I think needs continual refinement. The second one is equity, and that certainly means a lot to or a lot of different things, I would say, to a lot of different groups. I think people typically like to think of it as, let's make sure a certain percentage of funding is dedicated to low-income communities, disadvantaged communities, or whatever's the term of art you like to use. And we would say, yes, and we need to get a little bit more um, sophisticated and beyond just that initial foundation. So one example is equitable reliability of charging stations. Circling back to that conversation, we don't know if there are differences in the level of access to reliable stations between various communities. How are chargers maintained in low-income communities versus wealthier communities? I don't think anyone's doing that kind of analysis to ensure that there's equitable access. The Energy Commission in California, once again, has to equitably distribute charging stations across all communities. That's just a a pocket of policy occurring at one state agency with their funding. We need to be holistically expanding policies like that so that no one's left behind in this transition. So those are some examples. So how do you see and how does Flow see the growth in charging in the the 2020s uh, coming from? Is it going to be residential? Is it going to be, you know, a workplace? Is it going to be other other public spots? Is it going to be multi-unit dwellings? Is it going to be be all of the above? I would say the lion's share of charging is still going to be largely residential. We've seen stats that people are 80% of charging is occurring at home. And I think that will continue to dominate what the statistics look like in terms of charging patterns. So that needs to continue to be a focus. Um, I think moving beyond that, we're going to see immense growth happening in uh, multifamily complexes. And when you start looking at cities in the denser residential urban geographies of the country, I mean, you have a lot of large apartment complexes, condominiums, places without private parking or it's shared parking. And it's it, it can be very challenging to get charging deployed directly on site at those areas. It has been done. It is being done. People are continuing to work on it. But it also begs the question of then what is, how are we serving those drivers? Because I think that's going to be the next level of need uh, when it comes to deploying charging solutions. Yeah, I mean, I I think the statistic is 33% of households are not in in single family homes. You know, they're most likely to be in multi-unit dwellings. So that is a fairly large, and that's just for the U.S., and it's even larger in, in countries uh, or in, in countries in Europe and so forth. So 
that's a pretty sizable proportion of potential drivers needing charging. But it seems like, you know, for the, for MUDs, for multi-unit dwellings, yeah, it does seem like it's, you know, it's not like putting a charging station at a fuel retail station, which I, I would admit it has its own set of, of, of challenges. It, it would seem really challenging more so in the MUD space as opposed to to other spaces to put that charging in. Um, am I am I wrong about that? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> not to be, it's nice to be right. <laughs> not to paint a pessimistic picture on, on like I said, people, very smart people from many different companies uh, are, are working on trying to solve that. Yeah. That being said, and this is a term we like to use a lot in the policy space, which is, it's not a one-size-fits-all um, solution or there isn't a one-size-fits-all answer to the MUD question because you have different complexes of different sizes of people with different income levels with different levels of access to parking. I mean, like I said, you have some apartment complexes that have no parking lots or it's a shared parking lot or some of the residents have dedicated parking or it's a luxury apartment complex versus maybe a lower income complex. And so all of these pieces of data or demographics can heavily affect how are we getting charging access to, to that building. And, and broadly speaking, it is an equi- it will become an equity question or an equity issue if we don't proactively tackle it. Yeah. Turning to electrification, we talked about the scale up of charging. How do you see both light and heavy duty vehicle charging or, or, or electrification in general scaling up in, in both Canada and the US in this, this next, next decade? And what kind of kinds of policies do you think are needed to, to support that? You mentioned ZEV mandates, but are there, are there other policies? And, and what do you guys expect to see? How, much, how many cars do we expect to see on, on the road here in the next few years going up to, to 2030 and beyond? That's a good question. And- is a little bit hard to answer with any level of definitiveness. <laughs> um, what I can start off by saying is I think when we think about the next frontier of where things are going with, let's say, light duty vehicle adoption, I think one of the very interesting things happening that we're seeing right now is the deployment of electric pickup trucks. Ford, GM, Rivian, they are all doing very interesting, very innovative stuff in that space. And when we think about the light duty charging market, I think we've been uh, more focused on, uh, and when I say we, I mean we, the industry or the people discussing policy have been focused on cars and SUVs more because we just haven't seen the trucks come. That's starting to change. And I think that also then raises the question, what does this mean for our rural charging strategies? I mean, trucks are going to have large, they have larger battery sizes right? You, you might have a different demographics of drivers behind them in terms of, you know, are they using that truck for a job? Is it a recreational vehicle because they're towing a trailer when they want to go camping? And so these are all, there's all these underlying questions then to that, that use case. What does that mean for, for charging and how we actually site and physically build these things and where do we build them? And what is the right power size? for the charger. So I think that's one interesting thing um, to point out on the, on the light duty side. Medium and heavy duty, uh, I think, becomes an even bigger question mark. It, very exciting space. 
But the the vehicle segments are so much more diffuse on the medium and heavy duty vehicle side. You've got you've got school buses, transit buses. You've got lots of different truck sizes, yeah. all performing different um, duties, and so therefore have like different duty cycles because of what they're what they've been created for. You've got the vehicles um, located just at ports on site, so that's an even that's been an even tougher nut to crack because we're having to approach charging solutions all from a purely commercial lens. You know, anytime those vehicles are down and charging that means it's not making money for the commercial operator and that's always going to be the driving concern on how do we electrify these things and how do i run them in a way that minimizes the downtime or the charging time let's say and maximizes them getting put to work so that we're you know maximizing revenue for our operations and i you know a number of states have entered into MOUs with each other to focus on medium and heavy duty vehicle electrification. California is mm-hmm. also trying to go 100% electric on the medium and heavy duty side by 2045, mm-hmm. I think. So you're also starting to see then, once again, those foundational policies that are laying the groundwork for this is the direction we're going to go in. And so that's the that's the key starting point. Yeah. But then going beyond that, it you know, not to be overly repetitive, but it becomes a game of, okay, you need vehicle incentives, you need charger incentives, low carbon fuel standard also plays an important role in that. And then you go beyond that to, to then get into, well, what are the policies then to inform the charging deployment strategies and how we address those needs? And, and you know, fleet operators, you know, they need they need technical support, they need technical guidance. So how do we do that research and how do we answer that question for them? Because they, they can't do this alone without the help of, of various experts. So one thing we didn't talk about, but I think is relevant to the question, especially to the question of expanding heavy duty electrification or in medium duty, as well as, as charging is demand charges, which we haven't uh, talked about. Do you see this is an issue for, for, for light duty vehicle charging. And I expect it will be one at least, uh, in, in the next few years anyway, for, for medium and heavy duty. It looks to me like there's recognition that this is an issue and potentially another barrier to expanding charging. How do you see that playing out? Do you think that most states, their PSCs and or their utilities will simply in the next few years move and move rather quickly to sort of uh, electric vehicle only type rates or, or rates that don't incur demand charges. Do you see that issue being re- resolved in the next few years? And, and if so, how? Well, demand charges, once again, are and this is happening in various pockets across the U.S. People know it's an issue. People mm-hmm. are working on resolving it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a lot of my colleagues from other companies in the charging space are trying to, you know, raise a flag on this issue because they know it can be so prohibitive to EV adoption. These these charges. I think it's. I think that pain point is definitely more acutely felt on the medium and heavy duty vehicle side. I mean, when yeah. we talk about these 
battery sizes for these trucks. I mean, you think about the the Tesla Semi, to choose an obvi- a more obvious example, the amount of power it's going to uh, need is okay. immense. And that strain on the grid is immense. Now, if you're a fleet operator and you've got 20 of those things, or you've got 100 of those things, and you're charging all of these vehicles simultaneously, I mean, the costs just become completely wild at that point. And it, it, it just doesn't make sense for them. Mm-hmm. So that's not to say this is a, a, an issue exclusive for the medium and heavy vehicle side, because even on the light duty side, you know, I think this is a, a an American value. We like to go faster. We always want to go faster <laughs> with everything, right? And it's like the bionic man. It's like bigger, faster, stronger. You know? Exactly. We've started out talking about 50 kilowatt DC fast chargers, 100 kilowatt, 150. Now we're getting up to talking about 350 kilowatts. There are charging companies that offer 350 kilowatt chargers. And I think it's, we talk a lot about the need to right size um, in our industry is let's deploy the the technology and power level that fits the use case um, Mm -hmm. for what the driver will want. And so I think there's a role for all of these different power levels for DC fast charging, and there's still going to be a role for level two. But I, I do think as you get into those higher power levels, 350 kilowatts, depending on how many you're citing and where they are and how often people are charging, I, I think it can raise a question about demand charges and the constraint on the grid. People who are way smarter than me are <laughs> aware of those challenges and how do we reform rates to make sure it doesn't prohibit the build out of infrastructure, prohibit drivers from wanting to even charge in the first place because it's it's too expensive. But my understanding, broadly speaking, is once again, another ongoing issue that has not been fully resolved across all of our, our, our rates in the US. And I think we've started to resolve it by piloting, eliminating demand charges and then phasing them back in over time. That's what I've mostly seen so far, but there could be other things happening um, in this topic. So my last question for you is, we just observed the U.S. Congress passing the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. There were a number of, of different sorts of provisions to support electrification, charging, and so forth. We have a Build Back Better Act that is pending, that hopefully will be passed by the end of this year that will uh, really increase consumer uh, incentives, just like you were talking about for charging um, and also about infrastructure. What is your reaction to those, you know, the provisions in those legislation, especially in the Infrastructure Act, which is passed, which is signed into law? You know, is that seven and a half billion for charging? You know, is it enough or does it make just a really nice down payment on the type of charging expansion that's really going to be needed to support EV uptake? These are great questions. And I'm going to be uh, somewhat repetitive with the headlines that I'm sure, you know, we've all seen, which is this investment from the federal government, it's unprecedented and it's historic. We, We haven't seen that kind of commitment from the federal government for EV charging. So I think all of us are applauding this major victory uh, for the Biden-Harris administration. Mm -hmm. To steal a quote from our CEO, he said it was well-fought and well-earned that they got this funding in the first place. So that's big. To your question of, is it enough? You know, the, the the easy answer is no, it's not going to be. It really is a down payment 
to really grow and scale the market, we need sustained year after year funding. Mm-hmm. And what's great is this funding, it, it will get rolled out over five years. It's going to give, you know, as long as states submit plans to the federal government, each state will get funding. And some states have not had the privilege of having any funding dedicated to this before. You know, some states are much farther along in providing th- their own state level investments or the utilities getting to invest. Not every state has had that benefit privilege. And so this has been so important to provide like an accelerating shot in the arm to those states and all the existing other state efforts going on. That's huge. And that's important because it's, this is a 50 state strategy with this funding. Mm -hmm. Um, The final thing I'll say on this is getting the authorizing the funding is really the first, uh, step. Now we need to make sure the money is rolled out appropriately so that we are adequately promoting market development and competition in the industry. But we also need to make sure that we're putting in consumer protection provisions with that funding, that we're putting in equity provisions, because these are all co-equal goals, I will say, that need to be pushed together and moved together in terms of how does this money support the charging market. Yeah, I guess the last the last last question I want to ask you is are there lessons learned that might be useful at, you know the 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 example I draw from is the Volkswagen settlement to the 50 states where some states opted in or actually most states opted in they they men most states decided to spend 15% of their settlement funds on charging. And there were a number of states that I think had never really, you know, all of a sudden they have this money in their lap and they've got to figure out for the first time, maybe, what they're going to do with it. So are there lessons learned from that process that you can think of that would be kind of applicable to what you're to what you're saying? Because I think, you know, in my review of it is, yeah, I think there were you know, some of these safeguards you're talking about, did that exist in all states? I'm not sure that it that it did, but that was kind of like the first pass at a at a big tranche of funding. In that case, I think it was three billion dollars that went to the went to the states to figure out, okay, how do we spend this? What do we do with it? How do where does the charging go? All of that sort of thing. So are there lessons learned there? Yeah, I, w- I would say generally there's two. You know, the first one, and this is something that I'm spending time talking to various state agencies about, is that when you roll out this funding, flexibility to charging companies or the f- the funding applicants is going to be key when it comes to, like I said, right sizing the solution, choosing the right technology, choosing the right power level, choosing specifically where you want to site it. And um, allowing some flexibility for the applicant to really leverage the local context on how do you or where do you want to deploy this charger? We've seen certain programs get prescriptive where they say, we want you to build a minimum of four 150 kilowatt DC fast chargers. That might be the answer and that might be what we want to do. But once you get that prescriptive, you're limiting options for the applicant. So that's one question. The second lesson learned is, you know, attaching requirements to the funding matters. So if you, and this moves companies along on their, their development of software and hardware. So if you specify requirements for roaming protocols, let's say to, to, so you can have a more seamless consumer experience, um, 
that stuff matters to companies and they re- they respond to that. Or if you're putting in reliability and uptime requirements, companies will respond to that. I mean, the, the, the money is the foundation here for them to get a foothold in the market in the first place. And so they will work as hard as they can to meet those requirements if it means it will, it will get them funding. All right. That's the show. Thanks for listening. I want to thank Corey so much for being on the show today. It was a real pleasure. Thank you for talking to us about Flow's experience and and, uh, charging, the charging space in general. Please come back. (laughs) It was a pleasure to have you. Likewise. Thank you so much for (laughs) today, Tammy. Thank you. And if you're looking for more analysis on future fuels, vehicles, transport energy issues, head to my website, transportenergystrategies.com. You can sign up for a free biweekly newsletter that kind of covers this whole world, this whole space of transport energy, and it comes on a biweekly basis. Thanks again for listening. Mm -hmm.